Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. This week, I am interviewing Sandy Phillips Kirkham. Now, uh, Miss Phillips Kirkham, she is uh, just a really cool, inspiring person. Uh, it is a, a different topic this week. It's it's a tough topic for, for some to hear. Um, she wrote a book about her experiences as a teenager um, with um, sexual abuse in the church. Um, now, this, this church is, is not... Um, a Catholic church, you know, that's that's where we've heard in the news a lot of different um, abuse and, and heard from uh, survivors of that abuse before. Um, this is a, a different denomination, which we'll talk about, um, but it, it, is a, it is a tough topic. It, it's, you know, normally this, this podcast is, is all, you know, very fun things, but I, I think that, that it's important to, to not just always, you know, talk about you know the, the fun things. Um, sometimes we talk about things that are are needed to be talked about, and and the inspiring things and the powerful things. Um, I think Sandy really gives a lot of really good, insightful information on how to, um, you know, how to to overcome, you know, some of these issues. Should you have had uh, them yourself? Um, should you need to support someone who um, has been um, a survivor of, of abuse, um, you know, of a sexual nature, certainly uh, within a, a church structure. Um, you know, it's it's a powerful story. I think it's one that um, you know you'll you'll gain a lot from listening to. Um, I, I really just I really appreciated her time. Um, it, it was it was a delight to to speak with her. Um, you know, I I learned a lot in this podcast myself. To be honest with you. Um, you know, I, you know, I don't have a lot of experience in, you know, sexual abuse um, survivors or, or, or victims or, or anything like that. Um, so just to, to, to hear um, from her and just how candid and open she was to, to share, um, you know, because she wants to, to be a resource for others was just a, a really cool thing. Um, I do want to say, you know, like I said, with, with not having a ton of experience, um, you know, I wanted to ask her, you know, all the questions I could. I wanted to make sure that I was respectful of the situation. Um, hopefully, you know, anyone listening that, that you know, has has dealt with this, um, you think that I, uh, I guess I, I did this justice. I didn't ask any questions that you thought was too uh, intrusive. I certainly didn't try to do that. Um, you know, I, I really just uh, appreciated her time and, and did the the best I could in a, a really interesting topic. Um, you know, she made it. She made it just about as easy as as I think uh, possible. Now, obviously, this topic is a very serious one, and you know, the overall story as to what happened to her is is sad. Um, but it is absolutely a story of of overcoming and a story of of triumph and and living just a, a fantastic life, um, and and just learning to to get past what had happened and, and helping others, um, you know, get past some of, of their struggles as well. It's a story of, of issues within the church structure. Um, so it, it's not just a, it's not like a, we're, we're not going to spend the next hour in a, I guess, a, a, a sad 
sad state. We're going to talk about the issues seriously um, and talk about things that need to be done, hear about her story. Um, but it is a powerful one. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I really just appreciated her time. Without further ado, here is my interview with Sandy Phillips Kirkham. I am here today with Sandy Phillips Kirkham. How are you, Sandy? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Right. Well, let's kind of just start at the the very beginning. Tell us just a little bit about growing up in, in Cincinnati. Well, I grew up in Cincinnati, lived here all my life. Um, my parents uh, divorced when I was seven. So that was a traumatic uh, effect on my life. It was a um, very confusing time. Um, I think to leave my dad and move in with my stepfather, that was very difficult for me. And it wasn't just hurtful and confusing, but it was also embarrassing because at that time in the 60s, no, anybody's parents were divorced. And so it was an embarrassment as well. So um, that, that event um, probably impacted my life really for the rest of my life. Um, and then I eventually um, married. I've been married to my husband for over 40 years. We have two children and two perfect granddaughters. Um, so it's a pretty good life right now, but I, I had some real issues early on in my life. And then later on in my life, um, I had an issue with a pastor and sexual abuse. Yeah. Yeah. So, so growing up, I know, you know, I've listened to a few of your other interviews. Um, you know, a after your parents divorced, you started going to, to church with a, a friend, obviously this, this kind of most of your story has to do with, you know, your time in church, but let's talk about just starting church and, and what, uh, what, what made you do that? Cause if I remember right, you weren't overly uh, religious be before that. No, my parents didn't attend church. So church life um, was not a part of our life, but my best friend who lived up the street, as you said, invited me to church. And once I went, I absolutely fell in love with it. I went every Sunday after that, um, you know, any, anything I could be involved in in the church, I was, even as a small child, I went to church camp, vacation, Bible school, those kinds of things. And then I was baptized when I was 13. And from that point on, my faith really deepened and my spiritual life began to really grow. And it was a place that I just absolutely loved being. I sang in the choir. I taught Sunday school. I just, anything that I could do that I felt was helping grow the church and be a part of God's plan is what I did. And I've said this so many times that if the doors of the church were open, I was there. I mean, it was a place for me that a place where I could feel secure and safe. People surrounded me and supported me and loved me there. I just absolutely loved it. It was my whole world, really. Yeah, which makes the, you know, what happened a little bit even more tough, given that you did feel so secure in church. Now, I'll tell you, I am Catholic. So, of course, we know a lot about, you know, abuse in the church. Um, I, I haven't read anywhere. It, it, what, what kind of denomination were you? Um, this was the Church of Christ Christian Church. It's a um, non-denominational independent type church. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so many people when I, in fact, one person I was telling them when I was writing the book that I was writing my book about sexual abuse, he said, well, I'm so glad that I was not in the Catholic Church. And I said, well, this abuse didn't happen in the Catholic Church. So mm -hmm. there is this misnomer that it's only a Catholic issue problem. It's, it's not, um, it's it, anywhere there is a position of power and people are vulnerable and certainly churches have a lot of vulnerable people because they seek out the church for their needs. Um, abuse can happen. And it, it, so it does happen in any denomination. Yeah, yeah. So you, you started going to church kind of when you were seven or eight, you mm -hmm. said that you were baptized when you were, were 13. 
Um, I know some of the, you know, the main issues happened when you were 16. Mm -hmm. I want to be very respectful of, you know, the, the situation. So I, I'd rather kind of you just tell, tell me the story rather than, than um, you know, asking sure. specific questions. So if you would just kind of tell us just a little bit about what happened when you were 16. Okay. So just after I turned 16, our church hired a new youth pastor. He was very dynamic, very charismatic. I mean, he was so different than anybody else we'd ever seen as a minister or a pastor. He had a personality that just people were drawn to him. Um, he was 30 and married with two children, but he really acted more like the kids in the youth group. He wore cut off jeans. He had long sideburns. He was just drove a convertible. He talked about our kind of music. I mean, you know, he was sort of like in the 70s, which you call hip. And he was just so different. And with that, he brought new ideas to the church. And so we had programs and things that we'd never done before. And people and kids started coming to our church and the church attendance started exploding. And this, it was all because of what he was doing within the church. And he really started developing, what I would call like a cult-like atmosphere. I mean, people wanted to please him. They wanted to be around him. And so early on, he chose four or five of us to be his core leaders and to no one's surprise, I was one of them. But he started focusing in on me a little bit more than the others. He was taking me to lunch. He would take me on hospital visits. You know, and none of this seemed out of line because he seemed like he was this youth pastor helping this young girl. My, my dad wasn't in my life because of the divorce. And that was a real pain in my life. So he was, it didn't seem out of line what he was doing at the time. But the attention started growing a little bit more and more on me. And he was, of course, telling me how wonderful I was and how much I was helping him in his ministry. And I was thought this was wonderful, you know. But then one night um, after a youth group meeting that was held in my home, he stopped me, started telling me how wonderful I was and how much he appreciated all the work I'd been doing for the church. And then he started caressing my face and he bent down and he kissed me. And I was absolutely stunned. I, I, I thought, I think he just kissed me. But I couldn't let my mind go to the place that this man who was my pastor would be doing anything he shouldn't be doing. And so I thought, well, maybe this is just his way of showing he appreciates me. I mean, it was kind of this kiss that I didn't know if it was wrong, but I didn't think it was right. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't process it. So I didn't do anything. And it just happened. And I just let it go. Now I babysat at his home in the evening because his wife worked in the evening. So that really gave him the opportunity to spend a lot of time alone with me, but we would sit and talk about the Bible or we'd talk about books he'd want me to read to help me grow spiritually. So I, I just, again, I didn't see it as anything unusual, but you know, if this had been my 30 year old neighbor down the street and I was babysitting for them and he wanted me to stay all evening and talk to him. I mean, I would have gone home to my mom and said, this guy's weird. He wants me to sit and talk to him all evening, but because he was my pastor and I trusted him, I didn't see that in the same way. Um, I accepted that behavior differently than I would have been if he'd been my neighbor down the street. But eventually there was about a year, which I call the setup and the grooming year where he started telling me again, how wonderful I was. He was putting me in positions of committee uh, appointments where I was doing more work in the church. And at one point he had sex with me in his home. And I, I, again, I froze. I didn't know what to do. I started to, to think I'm, I don't, Think he's doing this to me. So I really just blocked it out. But once he crossed that boundary, then the relationship totally changed. You know, he told me I couldn't tell anyone that I would be blamed, that no one would believe me. And I'm thinking, I don't even believe this has just happened to me. And 
I felt like I was committed to him because I had given away my virginity. And you know, in the church in the 70s, I mean, that was, you didn't do that. And if you did that, you were committed to this person. And so I felt I was trapped and that I had an obligation to this man. And I did care about him and I did like him, but I didn't love him. Like he was telling me he loved me and then, you know, he would always take care of me. And I, it was a total state of confusion for me. And once he had sex with me, that he totally became a different person. He became violent. He hit me. He, he was emotionally uh, abusive to me. It was a dark, dark, dark relationship. And I couldn't see my way out. I felt like I was in a black hole with no way out. And he would tell me things that, you know, well, everyone else loves me. Why can't you love me the way? And, and you deserve to be treated this way because you don't know how to behave. And I, I, I just became an emotional wreck during that time. And the, the abuse lasted for five years. It went on for five years. Um, and by the end of the five years, I totally was under his control, totally under his control. Yeah, yeah there's... That, there's obviously a lot to lot to impact there. I just wonder about, um, I mean, how was obviously with with five years and him being your your youth pastor, what was what was times outside of that relationship like? Did you guys just have to act, you know, normal, and you were expected just to act like you know, you were just a, a regular member of the the youth group, or or how did that happen? Well, um, he was the youth pastor for two years and then he was promoted to senior minister. And yes, mm -hmm. that's basically, you know, I was, and, and actually the, once he had sex with me, all of a sudden I was no longer that important to the church to him anymore. I mean, it, it the, the carrot that he held out there for me to say, you know, you're so good, you're wonderful. And I need you in the ministry. All of a sudden that wasn't important anymore. Um, but yeah, we had to just pretend that, things were normal between the two of us. However, after his actions were discovered, there were many people who would later say to me, you know, I saw something one time that I thought was odd, or, you know, there was one time he said something to you that I thought, well, why would he say that to her? So I think there were red flags, but because of who he was, no one would ever think, you know, again, this was the seventies. And at that point there wasn't internet, there wasn't Oprah, there wasn't this scandal with the Catholic church. So no one would have ever suspected that this man would be doing anything he shouldn't be doing. Um, but it was, it, was a, it was a very difficult time to sit in church and to listen to him talk about the sanctity of marriage after he had sex with me on Saturday night. Um, it really messed with my mind. It just put me in a place that, a dark place that I just, I didn't know how to get out of. Yeah. So, so given that you weren't as, I guess, you, to him as important in the church and maybe not, you know, that, that typical Bible readings and things, how did he continue for those five years to, I, I guess, draw you in and make you come to his house or you go to him to come to your house? Or how did that happen? Well, you know, the, the grooming process and all that manipulation and the gaslighting, all of those things play into your emotions to a point where, you, you know, again, I didn't, I had lost the ability to think for myself. I didn't trust my own judgment. My reality became his reality, what he wanted me to think and believe. And so um, I, you know, when he requested something, I just, I did it. I, I, I was, first of all, you know, he was violent. So I was afraid. Um, and who was I going to tell? Who was, who was there to help me? There was no one in my mind, even though there were, as a victim, you don't see that. There may be a way out, but if you don't see that way out, it doesn't matter. 
there could be four or five doors that could be open to get you out of this relationship. But if they, they look locked to you, that's what you see. And so for me, I just accepted the relationship that this was what my life would be. I remember at one point I thought, I'm never going to be married. I'm never going to have children. This is my life. And I will have to learn to live this way. And that's where I finally was able to have some sanity because I just accepted it to be what it was. And once you're at that point, you know, again, whatever he says or does, then that's what I did. Yeah. So were you able to, I mean, obviously you were talking about living with your mother and a stepfather. Were you able to, to them to, to make it kind of look like you know, everything was, was going okay in your world? Because obviously a lot of things were, were crumbling. Were you able to really, I guess, compartmentalize that? I was, and abuse victims are very good at acting because we have to for our own survival and sanity. Um, and, you know, many people said to me, well, where were your parents during all this time? Well, my parents were not, I was in church. Why? I, I, my activities were all around church. So to them, this was wonderful. I mean, this was, again, the 70s. So drugs were prevalent then, free sex. So to have their daughter in church why would there be any concern or any worry? There was no reason for them to suspect or, or to worry about anything because I was in church. Um, you know, the times that I'd have to come home when I was upset, I'd just go to my room right away. I mean, that's kind of normal for teenage girls to be kind of sulking anyway. And so I don't think I gave them any indication that there was anything wrong. Um, and, but, you know, we can all look back and I'm sure they did at that time of seeing things that, oh yeah, this did seem strange to me at the time. But, um, and yet you also remember a lot of these men, sometimes women are very good at not only manipulating the victim, but those around them. I mean, he was very good at getting people to love him, to, to, to like him, to want to do things for him. Like I said, it was almost like a cult. So he had his little tribe around him that no one was ever going to suspect him of being. And that's what makes him dangerous because you don't see them as a predator and as someone who's taking advantage of someone under their control. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned um, some, somewhere that I was reading that you knew that this wasn't the first time that he had done something like this and it wasn't the last. Was it, were, I guess, were you the only victim in this church? Um, I was the only one that I think he actually had sex with, but there were multiple women and young teenage girls where he inappropriately touched them or kissed them. And I know that because he told me he would brag about it. You know, so-and-so came into my office and I just started kissing her and she let me. Um, he had a way of, you know, making them believe he, they were the only ones and that they were special. I don't know what, you know, that situations, all those were, but yes, there were, definitely more women and young teenage girls that he had inappropriate contact with. And when he, just after he arrived at our church, a young woman from his first church came forward and accused him of sexual inappropriate behavior. He didn't deny it. He promised it would never happen again. It was a mistake. So the elders decided that they would let him continue as our youth pastor. They gave no information to the congregation. And within six months, that's when he was kissing me in my hallway. And then after he left our church, he was moved to the next church within a short time. He had sexual inappropriate relationships with a 20 something year old. And then I lost track of him until I, I, I don't know if you read in the book or, but I did after 27 years, when I finally realized what had been done to me, I hired a private investigator and I confronted him. 
Yeah, which I definitely want to talk a little bit about that. Um, but I, I know with, you know, when you did, I guess, tell, tell us a little bit about how you finally, after five years, did, um, I, I guess, come forward. I know that you, you spoke about the elders not necessarily accepting, you know, the, the story and, and kind of just brushing under the rug. So tell us a little bit about that. So um, two people became suspicious in the church and they followed him one night and found us together. I was never asked a question. I was never asked anything about the situation. I was simply told how to behave, where I was to sit in church, what I was to say to someone if they asked me any questions. I was really under the control of the elders and what I was to do and not do during the time that they were deciding what to do about the situation. Um, He was called into the elders meeting several times and gave his version of what was going on. They decided that they would take a vote to see if he could still stay. Uh, that vote failed, so they decided to move him to the next church. Um, after a while, there were some rumors going around of what was really happening, and so they decided that he needed to make a confession to the church. It was very vague. He simply got up and said, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned against my wife, and I'm a man with faults. And that's all he said. The next day, he asked me to meet him in a hotel room. So he has, his, you know, he had no remorse. Um, they moved him to the next church. And within a couple months, I was called in to the elders. And I was told that because of my behavior, I was to leave the church. And I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. I loved that church. And I, I thought he was forgiven. He was able to move on. Did I not deserve that same treatment? I didn't. I was told to leave the church, which I did. And for 27 years, I never told anyone. I kept the secret from my husband. My close friends never knew. And for 27 years, I lived a secret that I thought it was really, I I thought a lie because I was hiding something from people that I thought if they knew this about me, that I had had this affair with a married pastor that they would think differently of me. I mean, think about it. How bad do you have to be to be kicked out of a church? I didn't want anyone to know that about me. I didn't understand that I had been taken advantage of and I had been sexually abused by a man that I should have been able to trust and someone who was supposed to help me and guide me spiritually, not tear me down. And for 27 years, I never understood that. And so I lived with that. And it was only after a trigger factor 27 years later, that forced me to face my past and that I was able to, first I told a very close friend and then I eventually told my husband, um, which then again, it led me to the point of, you know, for me, I felt the only way I was gonna be able to move past this and the only way I was gonna be able to heal was to confront him. I mean, I didn't know if he was still alive. I didn't know anything about him, but I did find him ministering in a church in Alabama and I confronted him. And I, for me, I just needed to be able to look at him in the eye and say to him, I know what you did and you had no right to do it. I said a little bit more than that, but I was just confident in myself that I needed at least say that. Right. Yeah. And I I want, I do want to ask you about that, but I also want to ask you about given the, the way that the, the church treated you, I mean, how did that make you feel about organized religion as a whole? I mean, I, I believe and I've, I've listened somewhere that you, 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 you didn't lose your faith, which is, which is a good thing, but how did you feel about, I guess, just the, 
organized religion and, and how it, I mean, it pretty much enabled this to happen. Well, I have said many times, as horrific as the abuse was and the impact it had on my life, being told to leave that church really had a greater impact on my life because it, it truly took away from me the joy of a church. Um, I, it, it, his actions and the response of the elders contaminated every part of a church for me. It, it, it took the peace and the joy that I once so once loved about was gone for me. Um, I, I, it, I, I have trigger factors when I'm in church. I re, I'm reminded of, of how I was treated in church. And it just, it's a contamination that I, I never could get past. I did not lose my faith in God. I didn't pray for 27 years. I couldn't open the Bible for 27 years. But I never, I never didn't believe that God caused that to happen. But I could, again, processing it all was so difficult for me because how could I, how could this happen in a church that I love? And the response of those elders really did um, put me on a path of, just not being able to be a part of a church anymore. Um, now, let me say that um, not only did I confront my abuser, but I did request a meeting with the current elders of that church. Now, none of them were at the church at the time and I wasn't looking to blame them, but it was important for me for that church to recognize what they did was wrong and that I had every right to be in that church. And so I am thankful that they gave me that opportunity I mean, they could have easily said to me, no, you know, this didn't, this happened 27 years ago. We don't have anything to do with it. It's over. But they didn't. They allowed me to come. And I told my story because I also wanted to set the record straight because I'm pretty sure he gave them a different version of what had happened. I mean, one of the things that he told the elders at that time was I was 20 when this started and it had only been going on a year. That, that was a total lie. I was 16 and it went on for five years. So I knew that there were facts out there, so posed facts that weren't accurate. And I wanted to set the record straight. But more importantly, I wanted that church to say to me, we're sorry for what we did to you. And they did. And they did. And that was, that, that was a, a huge part of my healing. And I so appreciate the fact that they did that. Um, yeah. Not many churches will do that. I have many victims tell me that that's not their experience. Um, and I'm not sure why, because it's such a help to the victim to acknowledge what they did was wrong. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I think it's important to kind of just to talk about just how big the, these kind of abuse things affect people's lives. You know, with 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 church, it, it, it created triggering factors, just going to church and opening the Bible uh, with trust. I'm sure that was a, an, right. is, an issue. So. I guess this this is one of the more personal questions here, but you know, once you were you finally were were married and, and had a loving relationship, did it affect that? I mean, when it came to obviously you had learned, you know, intimacy and things like that was a was a kind of a, a bad thing. So did it affect your your ability to to truly, I guess, be be happy in a marriage at first and, and be intimate? You know, it, it didn't necessarily with me. Now, that's not usually the case with a lot of victims that it is. A, a, but my husband was so loving and so wonderful and so different than this man that I didn't feel sex was dirty with him. And I, there were moments, I will be honest there. Yes, there were moments when I thought, 
you know, I'm going to say his name out loud. I don't want to, I mean, or, you know, will he wonder how does she know how this works that way? Why is she doing this? I mean, I would, there were moments like that, but I would say overall, because of who my husband was and how caring he was and how tender he was, that sex became very easy with, for, with me, with him for me. Um, but, but, but that is not always the case with many victims. It affects their, their sexual lives more than most people would think. Yeah, and that, and that is something that I, I have heard. I mean, so. I, I'm so grateful that I didn't have that experience, but it's easy to see why someone would. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about that, you know, a, a happier topic. And that is, you know, your, your husband and, you know, you, you already talked about how, how great of a guy he is. So tell us just a little bit about what, what happened uh, when he, when you did, I guess, tell him. Well, I was terrified to tell him and, and not because I knew in my mind he would be accepting and supportive but when you spend 27 years worrying about the consequences of your secret getting out and you, and I've been told over and over by my abuser, no one's going to believe you. And the consequences of your telling are going to be horrific. I had that in the back of my mind. And I'm so, it was so, I was terrified to tell him just absolutely terrified. I met him at his office. I said, I need to talk to you about something. And he couldn't have been anything more than just loving and kind and understanding it, it, and so that was huge for me that he was able to be that. And I knew he would be, but, you know, I saw what happened when the elders found out. I saw what some of the people in the church, how they turned on me when they found out. And so I couldn't risk that the bill would turn on me. I, I thought, well, is he going to wonder why I kept the secret for 27 years? Is he going to wonder why I didn't trust him? I, I had all these questions that I was so afraid to tell him. And when you when you've kept a secret for so long, to finally utter the words is so, so difficult to do. And, but I knew I had to tell him. I knew I couldn't move past my abuse and I knew I couldn't heal as long as I was still keeping this from him. Um, so that was, again, he, he was very supportive. Um, I think he was concerned about me confronting my abuser, but again, you know, he said, this is something if you feel you need to do, then you do this and I will support you. Um, and he's just been, he's just been a, a rock for me. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good thing to hear. So, you know, it, it was 27 years that you had, you know, this, this weight that you were carrying all by yourself. So, you know, you, you mentioned a, a triggering event. What, what happened for, to, for you to finally say the time is, is right. And this is when I'm going to to, I guess, to let those I, I love know a little bit more about what I've been dealing with. Well, let me just say, I had intended to go to my grave with this secret. I, I did everything I could to protect that secret for 27 years. So this wasn't a moment of, I think it's time. Mm -hmm. I, I was driving in my car uh, to my daughter's golf tournament. This is in chapter one of the book. And I went past the highway sign of the city to which he had moved after he left our church. And I saw that sign and I absolutely fell apart. I had to pull to the side of the road. I got out of the car and sat on the side of the road on the highway and just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And I, I couldn't understand why I was having these feelings. I'd had trigger factors before I handled them. I just couldn't figure out why I couldn't let this one go. And I got in the car and I had the weekend with my daughter 
and all the way home, I couldn't think of anything else. And all I could think of is I've got to do something about this. I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and telling someone wasn't my first thought. But after two weeks of total angst and anxiety, I walked around the house wringing my hands. I, I, I was a mess. I was an absolute mess. I thought, I've just got to tell somebody. And so I chose my best friend who was a counselor. And there was a freedom in telling her. It wasn't easy. It took me 20 minutes to get the words out that I was sexually abused by my youth pastor. And that began the moment that I thought, okay. And I didn't tell my story. I mean, if, if anyone has read the book, there's a lot of personal things in there. Um, it, it's, it's a story of 27 years. I didn't tell everything at once. You know, I was testing the water. So she was very supportive. Um, and I, then I told two more friends. And then I eventually told my husband, but telling was so empowering for me because it was saying to myself and that 16 year old girl, you can let go of this because it wasn't your fault and you need to heal. And it's time for you to live the life you were meant to live. Yeah, no, I think that though, anytime anyone can, can take the power back there, that's, that's always a, a great thing. It's something I, I love to, to hear. And, and I know that there's, there's probably people listening that, that may be, I guess kind of in maybe they're in the same boat and, and they're they're holding things in or you know maybe they they know someone who they suspect might be having issues. So if you would just just give us give uh, you know listeners advice for um, dealing with with their own sexual abuse and and you know empowerment there or seeing the signs of, of someone else who is. Well, first I would say we're victim what was done to you was not your fault you should have been able to trust this man of god and you should have been able to trust him in the safest place on earth the church so you did what you could with the coping skills that you had and you were targeted for your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses these men choose their victims and because they know they can easily manipulate someone so the first thing a victim needs to understand it was not your fault and that's a hard, that took me a long time because I kept reminding myself, well, I could have done this. I should have done that. No, not when you're under the control and being manipulated by an abuser. You, you've lost that power. So it wasn't your fault. The second thing I say to victims is you need to educate yourself. Read all you can about clergy sexual abuse so that you understand what was done to you. Understand what grooming is. Understand manipulation, gaslighting, all of those things so that you can finally begin to understand what was done to you. If you can find a support group, there are many online. Um, I work with a ministry called the Hope of Survivors Ministry. They have a private Facebook group for, for victims, along with their website has a lot of good information, my website as well. So find a place where you might be able to share your feelings and your, your, your concerns, your pain with other victims, because that's so empowering. Um, Survivor Sanctuary is another one that's very good for helping victims. And then read all you can. Just those two things are so important. In the back of my book, I list some of the books that were helpful to me as, a lot, as well as a lot of websites that I think will be helpful with victims. And then finally, you need to tell someone. And I sit here saying that knowing how hard and how difficult that is. I, I spent 27 years in fear of telling someone but you can't move past your trauma. You can't heal as long as you're holding it in. That trauma is always going to be a part of you and it's going to eat away at you and it will keep you from being who you're supposed to be. So 
find someone you can trust and you don't have to tell them everything. You don't certainly have to feel like you got to write a book, but it's so important to tell someone and then just give yourself time because healing does take time. Be patient with yourself. You're going to take three steps forward and five steps back. Sometimes you'll take six steps forward and only one step back, but it's worth it because you're worth it. Um, and as far as helping someone who's been victimized, I, the greatest gift you can give a victim is to listen to them. Let, give them, you be the place for their safe space. Let them tell you your story without questions, without judgment, and let them tell you over and over and over. Because victims not only need to tell their story to someone else over and over, but we need to hear it for ourselves. I needed to repeat over and over my story so that I could let, get it out even more each time. I would also remind um, people to not defend the offender. Now people are gonna say, well, duh. But because these men are priests, rabbis, clergymen, we look at them as special people. They've done wonderful things in the church. And so there's a tendency sometimes to say, Yes, but think of all the good things he's done. And, and, and I know that what he did to you was horrible, but he is a good person. No, he's not a good person. And if you can't help from saying that, then don't talk to a victim because that's one of the most hurtful things you can say to a victim is to try to defend him in any way. What he did was wrong and he should be removed from the ministry. And then the last thing I would say is that be careful about suggesting spiritual things. So like, it's, it's not comforting to a victim for someone to say to them, I'll pray for you. Or, you know, the Bible says, keep in mind that what you find comforting is going to be trigger factors for victims. And I know that's kind of hard sometimes for those who find comfort in those things. But just keep in mind that some victims are going to find those things not helpful. Yeah, yeah. Something that I, I guess I've wondered about and given that you're, you know, so open with, with talking about this. You know, I've heard a lot of people that are, are you know, victims of, of sexual abuse talk, I guess, about the guilt they felt in the situation, which is just unfathomable to me, you know, that there's, there's guilt from the person who's been abused. So can you speak about why that's, why that's the case? I, I just don't understand how the abuse can feel some sort of, of guilt for the situation. Well, first, let me say, even children as small as five and six will feel guilt because they know right and wrong. And they know it's wrong to have some let someone, and they think they let that person touch them. You know, mom always says, don't let anybody touch. And then, you know, you're asking a child to say no to an adult. That's, that's impossible. And so the, even children at a very small age will feel guilt. We feel guilt because we felt like we could have or should have done something and we didn't. And in reality, again, We've got this powerful man. We've got a spiritual man. We've got someone who has spent a, a good length of time grooming us and building us to a point of thinking that we can trust them. And they also de develop, a, they put a dependency that we need them. And so we don't know how to say no. And we're afraid to say no. And so because we didn't do those things, we feel guilt and we feel shame. And our abusers will also tell us, you know, you know if anyone finds out what you've done, or what we've done, you know, you're going to be in trouble. And so we've already got this feeling that we've done something wrong. I mean, I, 
I just always felt that I had had an affair with this married man. I, I never understood the dynamics of clergy abuse or sexual abuse. That's why it's so important to educate and understand what was done to us. Um, the guilt and the shame is huge. It's just, it, and that's, and it, it adds to why we don't want to tell anyone because we're embarrassed and I don't want anyone to know this about me. But make no mistake, any guilt and any shame deserves to be squarely on the abuser. It was always his responsibility to stay within the boundaries of his ministry. It, regardless of anything that she may or may not have done, it was always his responsibility to stay within those boundaries. It, it wasn't her job to make sure he did his job. So I, the guilt part is, 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 I know it's kind of difficult to understand, but every victim feels it. I mean, yeah. we feel guilty for what we've done. And then of course, when the people surround us tell us, yes, you, you did something wrong and we're going to forgive you for what you did and you're no longer allowed to be in this church, it only reinforces that guilt. Yeah, well, I appreciate you uh, sharing because that is something that I've I've wondered about because I've heard that you know in almost every every survivor's story talking about the you know the guilt they've they've felt. So so you know you you mentioned that he he was married. This is the last question I want to ask specifically about the situation. But you know, do you do you think his wife knew about this and enabled him to kind of to to act this way, given that it was a habitual thing, or do you think she was just I don't, I don't really, I, I don't really want to give her an excuse that she really had no idea. So, I, I mean, I don't know. Um, well, of course I knew her because she was part of the youth group and was, you know, I sang in the choir with her. Um, I, I talk about a situation in the book that was, you know, horrific, what he did and pitting us against each other. Um, she did have suspicions. I mean, he didn't treat her very well. He was, I mean, I saw him throw a book at her one time when I was there babysitting. So he wasn't a, you know, he wasn't a good person. So um, so he was not good in his marriage either. And so she didn't, um, but she too was under his control and was emotionally abused. So she did have her suspicions. Um, she did go to the next church with him, but then when the situation occurred again, she divorced him. Um, and part of my story, which I think is a good part of my story, um, we reconnected years later and we are friends now. I've gone to visit her several times. Um, she was very loving and kind toward me. I mean, she could have had hateful feelings toward me. Um, she didn't. She was very wonderful to me. And she's a great lady. She's got a great marriage now. Um, but yeah, she, you know, she too was sex, not sex. She too was emotionally abused by him. And so she had her suspicions, but you know, what was she going to do? She, you know, this was her husband who his job was at stake if something were to find out. So um, she had these three small boys that she was trying to deal with. So, um, but she recognizes now, you know, the relationship as it, as it was, was not a good one. And it was an abusive one, but she ended up divorcing him eventually. Yeah. Yeah. And that's almost kind of a, a revelation as we were talking, you know, my initial reaction is that, you know, he, she enabled, she enabled him to, to act this way and stuff. But I, I guess probably in, in, a sense she was she was a victim of, of his you know his acts just just the same so no yes. that, that makes she a was. lot of sense that makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense so you know you you talked about later on you confronting him and your husband being a little bit uh, i guess leery of that tell us just a little bit about that how how that first of all you know how that came about and then how that felt i mean i feel like that would be the ultimate uh, either trigger event or the ultimate kind of just uh 
I guess, empowering yourself finally. So I, I just wonder about that situation. Well, I think my husband's concern was that um, I was going to be disappointed in what I would find after I, I met with him. And I think he, you know, he felt like this man was probably going to just say whatever he needed to say to make sure I didn't pursue removing him from the ministry or anything else, that he was going to be there to try to save his own skin. And he would do or say anything he needed to say. Um, I think he was concerned that I was going to believe something, anything he would tell me. Um, I think he's more concerned that I wouldn't, I would be disappointed in the outcome. But for me, I, I didn't have an expectation of the outcome. I kind of probably knew he was going to say he was sorry. I, I kind of thought he would say, you know, well, I didn't mean to hurt you and blah, blah, blah. Um, my fear was that I would get into that room and be 16 all over again, and that he would use, be manipulative, and, and I would fall for his excuses all over again. That didn't happen. Um, I was disappointed in his response. He, you know, said he was sorry, but what I wanted for him was to understand what he took from me. He took from me the love of my church. He, he took my spiritual life and he distorted it. All he could say was, well, I know I took away your teenage years. No, that wasn't what he took from me. I mean, yeah, I didn't have a normal teenage life, but I could live with that. I couldn't live with the aftermath of everything he took from me from my spiritual life. Um, So, you know, I was disappointed. I mean, I don't know what else I would have expected him to say or do. The the, the good thing for me was I could at least go into that room knowing he couldn't deny it. I didn't have the fear like a lot of victims have that he, they, he would say, well, she's just misunderstood what happened, or that was 27 years ago, and I don't know what she's talking about. I knew he couldn't say that. Um, and that was probably gave me a little bit more courage to face him than a lot of victims would have be able to do because the fear of him denying it. Mm-hmm. So, is, I mean, is he still involved in ministry now? Uh, he is. I it, uh, After I met with him and I, I realized, you know, he had told me in the meeting that he had been identified after counseling as a sexual addict. Um, and that just sent chills down my spine. I thought this man doesn't, does not need to be in ministry. And he admitted that he'd had many multiples in his words, multiple occasions of misconduct throughout his ministry. They weren't all teenagers. Most of them were women, but I, I thought this isn't a changed man. This is, and, and whether he's changed or not, he lost that privilege of ministry. He, he, he's, there are other places for him to serve if he wants to, but not in the ministry. So I then went to, I sent letters to his current elders because no one in his current church knew anything about his past, which frightened me. I mean, that was why I was a victim because no one was told of his first encounter with someone in his first church. So I sent letters to his elders. They totally ignored me. I went to his denominational leaders in Indianapolis. I was told, well, this happened 27 years ago and we don't have any control over the individual churches. They can hire and fire whoever they want. And that was the end of it. And he remained a minister until at least 2012 or 13. And then he did part-time ministry. I think he might be semi-retired now. I'm not sure. Um, But the validity of my story had, was, had no meaning to anyone because it happened 27 years ago, in spite of the fact that he had multiple other occasions and he had been identified as a sexual addict. That's, that's just, that's mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just feel like that is just uh You couldn't make it up. Yeah, really. And then to think, you know, we're, you know, we're not talking about, you know, somebody being moved around in departments at a 
you know, sales firm. This is a, this is churches that are supposed to be ethical and supposed to be, you know, what, what we all should strive to be. I just, I just don't, I don't get that. That's just, I think part of it is we, you know, in the church, there's a skilling the well, we should, God forgive. So we should forgive. Well, you know, here's the thing about that. You know, my abuser, do I think he's remorseful? No. Do I think he's sorry? No, but that's just my opinion. But if he is, he deserves all the love and the grace and the forgiveness that God gives to all of us. But he deserves it sitting in the third row of the church, not standing in the pulpit. You can be forgiven, but not keep your job. I mean, this man does not belong in ministry like any other man that would cross the boundaries of this ministry. Any other profession, whether you're a doctor, you're a counselor, a teacher, you have any kind of sexual relationships with those under you, you lose your license. A doctor is not permitted to have any kind of sexual relationships with his patients. There's a reason for that because that doctor is under control of that person and they have a duty to act in the best interest of their patient and pastors should be no different. If you, if you are crossing that line and that boundary, you've lost that privilege of ministry. Doesn't mean you can't be forgiven, but you don't belong in the ministry any longer. And I think churches have a hard time with that. They, they don't see the professional violation. They only see the moral violation. And so they treat it as a moral violation by saying, we're going to give you a second chance. We're going to forgive you. But the professional violation says your license is removed and you do not belong in the ministry any longer. Right. And really, when you, give a, when you give an offender a second chance, what you're really saying is, I'm giving you a second chance to reoffend. And that was what happened in my case. When that young woman came forward the first time, they said to him, we're going to forgive you and you promise you won't ever do this again. And within mm -hmm. six months, he was kissing me in my hallway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's giving somebody do, with, that does something like that a position of power that's just going to continue that, that kind of nature. And it also, I think that really shows whether somebody is truly sorry if they're sorry in the second you know, the second pew, when they still have that position of power, they're going to say whatever it takes just to keep that position. Jackson, that is an excellent point I've made many times. You are exactly right. A truly remorseful man would say, I understand the devastation and the pain that I caused, and I don't ever want to do that again. And I'm not capable of not being able to do that again. I don't want to take that chance. And so therefore, I will remove myself from the ministry. You're right. That is that is what a remorseful person would do. You know, we don't return a person who would steal funds. If the church treasurer is stealing funds from the church. We don't say, oh, we forgive you. You can now keep handling the church funds. Mm -hmm. We just, you know, it's like returning a, an alcoholic and saying you can go into a, a, a bar. We just don't do You just don't do that. It's it, there's, And again, it's a professional violation and a remorseful person, like you said, would understand what it does to a victim to be sexually abused by someone in a spiritual position. It's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now you, you know, you've, you've talked about the, the book several times. I want to just make sure that we, we do highlight the book. What made you decide to, to write a book? Cause obviously that is just laying out some very personal details on the line. Uh, I'm sure, you know, I, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I'm sure a lot of it, probably deals with trying to help others not have the same experience, but what, what made you um, find that strength to, to be able to, to do that? 
Well, I had been speaking uh, about my abuse at different venues. I had spoken to Cincinnati Christian University, not in the detail that I went into the book, but just in general about sexual abuse and clergy abuse. And every time, every time I would speak, I'd have someone come up to me and say, you need to write a book. Your story is so powerful. And I wasn't ready to write a book at that time. It was too new for me. It was too raw. I, I didn't consider myself a writer. But as time went on, I realized and began to understand that my story was powerful and it could have an impact on others. And so one day I was talking to someone and this person was talking about another victim and said something like, well, I, you know, I don't know why these women don't tell right when it happens. What do they wait 20 something years for? And if it really happened, they would have talked when it happened. And I just struck a nerve and I thought so many people don't understand and I can help them understand through my story. So I wrote it because I wanted to educate people on the dynamics of clergy abuse, but I also wrote it so that victims could relate to my story. Because so many times, Jackson, what I have thought, what if I had heard someone's story when this was happening to me? I thought I was the only one. I didn't know that this happened to anyone else. Or what if I'd heard someone's story and how they got out of the relationship? Maybe it would have helped me. So I wrote it because I wanted to help other people understand it but I wrote it so that victims, as you said, could, could relate to my story because all of our stories and, 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 and your podcast is so wonderful for that reason. Our stories are important to each other, whether they're fun stories, good stories, bad stories, mm. we can help each other through our, our experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just, I guess a moment of levity a little bit. I, I think it is kind of interesting that, you know, you, you did take, you know, some time to, to, be able to tell people about the story and um, I guess kind of to come to terms with everything and be able to, to share it. So from, from that to now, you know, being on podcast, talking about it, that, that obviously that's awesome, but still, I I guess, what does, you know, what does, what does that feel like to have been, you know, for so long, not to be able to even utter the words and for 20 you know, when you, when you did finally do it, it took 20 minutes and now to be able to talk about it so freely on podcasts and write a book and all that, that's just, that's a really cool thing. Yeah. I would have never dreamt in a million years, I would be sitting here doing this. And while I did talk about it after 27 years, it probably took me a good two years to tell my story without absolutely sobbing every time. Mm -hmm. Um, There is such wonderful power in being able to free myself and to say, I don't have anything to be ashamed of. Yes, there's some things in the book that are uncomfortable to read, but that's who I was at the time and had been the coping skills that I had at the time. And I was under this control of this man. So I'm not ashamed of what's in my book. Um, and I think it can be a help to others. But yeah, you're right. I would have never guessed that I would be where I am today um, mm-hmm. talking about this. And it's been healing for me. It's been healing to be able to talk about it. Um, and I, I so th- I'm thankful, so thankful for the opportunity you have given me to do that because it is a difficult topic, and but it's one we need to talk about, and it, and so it's important that we do talk about it. And I'm thankful that God's given me the gift of gab because that's what I, <laughs> and I'm not afraid to speak in front of people. And so if I can do that, that's what I'll do. Not every victim can, and they don't need to. Right. Um, but for me, that's what I needed to do. So I'm happy to be here to be able to do that. No, I think that's really awesome. So tell us what what the book's called, how we can find it and all that good stuff. It's called uh, Let Me Pray Upon You. I I know this is the book, but um, it's with the words P-R-A scratched out and the word P-R-E inserted. Um, 
it's it's a quick read. Most people seem to really enjoy it. Um, it some people said it reads like a novel because it is a story. There's, you know, each chapter you think, okay, what's going to happen next? Um, and I do do some educational things in the back of the book to help people. But uh, the book is available on Amazon. It's also available on my website, which is my name. So it's www.sandy, with a Y, Phillips, Kirkham, K-I-R-K-H-A-M.com. I think if you Google, let me pray upon you, you can, then you can, that'll take you to my website as well. Um, so that's where the book is available. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm hoping that it's, it, I, I think it should be in every church library myself. Um, and there are lots of books out there. I mean, mine's not the only one. Like I said, there are other books that I've listed in the back of my book. So I, again, I encourage people to learn all you can about clergy sexual abuse, because once we all begin to understand it, then we can respond better to how we handle it. Yeah. So it's let me pray upon you with mm -hmm. P-R-E-Y. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if, if this is, you know, correct to say, but I, I think that that title is very clever. I really, I like that. It, it, I do like my title. It, it's <laughs> a it's a clever title for sure. Yeah, it was the first thing that came to my mind, and then I thought, well, now I got to write a book to put with the title. But right. yeah, I do. I I do think the title says a lot about what really sure. does occur. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's it's been a pleasure. It's absolutely been an eye-opening, um, you know, conversation. I I learned a lot. I think you know the listeners will too. I do urge them to to check out the book because. I mean, it, it was it was just a pleasure to speak with you. That's that's really all I can say. Well, I appreciate that, and you've been a delight as a host. And I again, like I've said many times, I so appreciate your willingness to let us talk about a topic that you know a lot of people don't want to hear. Absolutely. And that was my interview with Sandy Phillips Kirkham. Hope you took a lot from that. I know I did. Um, you know, like I talked about, you know, at the beginning before before the interview. As someone who you know is is not a, a sexual abuse survivor, um, I do hope that you know my questions did did it justice. You know, we talked a lot about triggering factors and and things like that. Um, I hope that you know that wasn't the case in this interview uh, for anyone who who is um, a survivor. Um, you know, I, I learned a lot. You know, I, I think during that interview, you you saw one instance where you know I said one thing, and then you know her response made me realize. Uh, something something totally different um, so it really was an, an educational experience um, you know learning about her story her overcoming it her writing a book and and just just the amazing things she is doing um, you know in in her community and then also in in helping other um, survivors so it, it was just a really cool thing I do hope um, you check out her book uh, should that be something that you're you're interested in in reading more about um, Thanks so much for being here this week. Really appreciate it. Hope to see you back next week. And take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think. Or, hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.